This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Follow Buck on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. How much more do we have to see the upside down world that we are currently living in before everybody understands what's really going on? The people who are making the decisions, the people who are actually in charge here are the ones that are pretending that they're either victimized themselves or that they're such friends to the victims. This is true all throughout American society now. I think that's why the Meghan Markle and Harry interview struck uh, such a chord with so many people, even though folks like me would usually say I could care less about the royal family. Everybody wants to be a victim these days, but it's not just that they want that elevation for themselves. They want to do it so that they can victimize others with impunity. This is what the left does now. This is the favorite game of the progressive left in America. We're so out of power that we can force you to say whatever we want and ruin your life and destroy your career unless you say exactly what we want. That's how out of power and depressed we are. It's pretty, it's pretty remarkable, isn't it? It's a, a fascinating and really terrifying circumstance in its own way. But I also want you to be really careful with what you're doing online these days, because, as you know, you can't trust these big tech companies. I don't. I'm constantly battling with them. I use their platforms while I can, but I know that they're gathering all my data and information and that this stuff could be used against me. They could kick me off the platforms for wrong thing. They've already done that. You don't think that can happen to you, too? Do you trust them? Do you want big tech to have your search history, your viewing habits? Do you know what they're going to do with that information? Yeah, they're going to sell it. What else are they going to do? Look, whenever you search for something online, you watch a video, you click a link, it gets tracked by big tech companies. They can match your activity to your true identity using your device's IP address. When I use ExpressVPN, these companies can actually see my IP address the same way. My identity is anonymized by a secure VPN server. My data is encrypted for maximum protection. Look, this is just the way you've got to be surfing the web using your online devices these days. You need ExpressVPN. VPN. Stop handing over your data to big tech companies and the government. Defend your privacy. Defend your rights the same way I do with a VPN that I trust for online protection. Go to expressvpn.com slash buck. That's expressvpn.com slash buck to get three months extra free. That's right. Expressvpn.com slash buck right now to learn more. So the fascists that they uh, have been claiming would take over America at any moment under Trump never materialized. Here's what we're actually seeing. The people who have been complaining about Donald Trump becoming a fascist dictator are the actual fascists in America. They're the people that you could say they're totalitarians, authoritarians, but they are leveraging government power. They are using their uh, their ability to manipulate public perception, to fundamentally alter central principles of our society, things like free speech, things like equal protection under the law, not equity protection under the law, not these, uh, these, these changes to core ideas that our entire country, our entire civilization is built on, who are really the fascists, the people that believe in freedom, individual liberty, individual choice, constitutional protection for all regardless of one's politics or the people who say you're not really allowed to speak in the way you want you're not really allowed to share your ideas we'll shut you down the private sector will help us the public sector the government will do it who's really the bigger concern for your future 
the Democrats now, you can call them commies, leftists, authoritarians, fascists, whatever it may be. They are certainly uh, they are certainly extreme in their approach to these political and cultural debates that are happening right now and also in, in their views, but also in their uh, in their approach to the very exchange of ideas. And that brings me to the Biden administration. Here we are two months in. You look at the Joe Biden administration and you say, where are things going well? I, I know we talk about Biden. Biden. We discuss how this guy doesn't really seem to be the president. You, you get the sense that at any moment they're going to have somebody else come out, maybe Kamala. They're going to have somebody else walk out. and No, oh, no, this is really the president. Joe Biden was just kind of keeping the seat warm. You know, he was just there as a placeholder. I think you could say this is the placeholder presidency. This is a guy who's just in the role because they wanted somebody with a D by his or her name. But the moment that they feel they can make a switch, they will. The moment somebody who is uh, more charismatic comes along, somebody who actually has greater political skills, that will be uh, that will be it. And Joe Biden will step aside. He'll retire, whatever the case may be. Because let's look at what's really going on in the country. You have a crisis at our southern border that they are pathetically insisting is not a crisis. I mean, nobody really believes that what's going on in in any way is normal. and, And no one thinks that the government can handle this. But here's here's Jen Psaki, for example, White House press secretary, won't speak the plain truth about this issue. Remember when they were asking Kayleigh Mackin any questions when she was White House press secretary? Like, will you promise you'll never lie to the American people? You know, they would just ask these condescending, idiotic questions. Journalism. Well, here's the current White House press secretary for this this absurd Biden administration, just full of incompetence and ideologues. Here she is on the refusal to conform uh, to confirm there's a crisis at our southern border. Play nine. I, I, we've been very clear uh, that there is an increase, that there are more children coming across the border than we have facilities for at this point in time. Uh, those numbers are tracked by the Department of Homeland Security. So I'm certainly I'm just suggesting that you talk to them about specifics. Well, we to them, Jen, they won't confirm the numbers. Well, I, I would encourage you to go back to them and ask them again. We're not going to confirm them from the White House. It's not our program. It's the are Department of Homeland Security. The department? Is the White House encouraging the department to release those numbers? And in the spirit of transparency that the secretary promised here at this point, we, we certainly encourage transparency. But what I also also think is important is to talk about what the root causes are here and what we're doing from a policy standpoint to try to address the challenges uh, that we're facing and that these kids are facing as they come across the border. What does that even mean? They're asking you for numbers. The White House has the numbers. They're hiding the numbers. So this is the administration that we were promised was going to be about truth and transparency and on a major issue that affects the whole country, that affects the future of the United States. Enormous, uh, enormous impact on our, our politics, our culture, just everything about this country. I mean, the border, the border and border security matters for everything. And yet we can't get a straight answer from them because here's what's very obvious. You know, part of being a leftist, it really is a cult. Leftism is a cult today. And you know how they used to say, oh, you know, Trump supporters, they're, they're all really in a cult. Mm, no, look at what happened over four years with with Trump in office. What were the awful things that were going on with Trump in office when there was a border crisis? You know, what Trump said there's a crisis. Let's fix it. Let's do something about this. And Democrats actually try to stop him at every opportunity. They've restarted the crisis that began under Trump when we fixed it. Right. This is the problem. It's like Trump patched up the hole in the dam. Democrats came along and said, you know what? Let's put that. Let's let's put another hole in the dam. Let's see what happens. 
It's very obvious. It's very straightforward what's going on here. When people believe that they can stay in the United States if they come here illegally and there's a straightforward process for them to do it, they show up in large numbers because being in America is a better deal economically and otherwise than being in a handful of Latin American countries, uh, Central American countries, a whole bunch of places all over the world. It's not just Central American migrants who are showing up at the border, but it's predominantly that. Remember how I've been telling you the cartels are making money off of this? And it might seem kind of counterintuitive. Can anyone just go to the border? Not if you want to be reasonably or relatively speaking safe. Not if you want to avoid being human trafficked or sexually assaulted or any of those things. So they're now finding that there are color-coded wristbands given to these migrants by the cartels for paying the fee. This is big business for transnational drug cartels that create a tremendous amount of lawlessness and instability on our southern border and in this country. What do you think U.S. crime looks like? What is what is uh, the homicide rate and incarceration look like in the United States without the drug trade? And what happens without Mexican drug cartels supporting that supply side, that, that supply? What happens? Exactly. You definitely don't have over 75,000 people ODing, which you had last year in 2020. You definitely don't have that all time, all time record. Uh, so this is a crisis on multiple levels. They won't even say it. They won't speak truthfully to you about it. They're hiding the numbers. Go ask DHS. You're the White House press secretary, Saki. You ask DHS. So, OK, that's what's going on at the border. How are we doing with all the healing? You know, let, let's go down the report card here. How are we doing with all the healing from the Biden administration? Well, we've just seen the extension of over 2000 National Guard troops in D.C. They're supposed to stay now, for an additional two months, because of the threat of the QAnon coup. Not kidding. That's why they're there, because they really think that QAnon, uh, whose you know, m- most, uh, most violent incident today did not actually involve the, the one on Capitol Hill on January 6th. They didn't kill any cops. That's not true. They broke property. They trespassed. They assaulted officers. Should be held accountable for any of the crimes committed. But it wasn't a, a it wasn't a violent insurrection by people armed and ready to murder and take over the United States government, which is what the mainstream media, the corporate media has been saying now for uh, for months. That's just not true. It was a riot. But we have to have thousands of National Guard troops there and fencing and all this stuff all over D.C. because of the paranoia of Democrats or because they're showing us who's in charge. It's tough to tell whether this is because they feel so secure in their authoritarian mindset, you know, we can do whatever we want now, or there's such a great insecurity. They feel like at any moment people will understand what a fraud the Democrat Party really is at its core. So that's what's going on in our nation's capital in D.C. We have one point nine trillion dollars of spending now that the, that the Congress is passing without a single Republican vote. No bipartisanship. Oh, but Buck, are Republicans bipartisan? They did five COVID bills last year with Democrats. Five. Democrats just figured we're going to get whatever we want. Our way of the highway. Deal with it. Elections have consequences. They have a will to power. You got to give them that. How's our respect for the rule of law going? Well, if you've been paying attention under this Biden administration to what's going on in, say, Minnesota where already there seems to be preparation for massive riots based on the outcome of the Chauvin trial, the officer Chauvin trial there. And if you read the autopsy report, 
Guy, to, to say that Officer Chauvin committed murder beyond a reasonable doubt is entirely unreasonable based on the autopsy report itself that says that he had more than enough fentanyl in the system to kill him. And the guy had multiple, multiple uh, possible systemic failures that could have caused his death. But they're going to say, oh, we, we have a, a country of oppression and racism. And so if that means whole neighborhoods in Minneapolis have to get burned down again, you know, Joe Biden will give some milk toast statement. He'll give some bull crap. Oh, well, you know, lawlessness. You know, you have to respect our rule of law, comma. But sometimes you got to burn down whole neighborhoods because you're angry because of the wokeness or whatever. That's we all know that's coming. Gas prices going up. Two trillion dollars is spending a Democrat wish list. Everyone's concerned about inflation now who pays any attention to macroeconomics at all. Uh, where where are things getting better? Oh, you could have a a 14 year old boy competing against your 14 year old girl in sports now or 18 year old, you know, college age, whatever. No Keystone XL pipeline destroyed tens of thousands of jobs. What is getting better here exactly? Oh, the covid plan that they have, which was just the Trump plan called something else, essentially for vaccination. Look at the report card, go down the list. What has Biden made better? What is better in the country right now? You don't have Trump's tweets. I don't think that's a I don't think that's a trade off that any emotionally sound, you know, mentally well person would make. But this is where we are. now. This is the person that they insisted was going to make the country so much better. We're almost two months in. And so far, he's made pretty much everything worse. I mean, I I can't think of anything that is a Biden specific decision where you say, well, that's really going to help. And his whole administration, look at what's going on. All predictable, but they don't care because this is actually what they want. Ultimately, the problem we have in this country right now is that we do not want the same future that the Democrat left does. We don't we do not see this country the same way. We're not trying to get to the same place through different means. We actually want different things. And the only way that we can come back together is when both sides can live in some kind of objective reality and see things like the crisis at our southern border and say, "Okay, this is a big problem. Open borders is a bad idea. Democrats won't do that. Not really much we can do except try to take back power and force them to stop being crazy. But the Border Patrol told me that they did inform the Biden administration and let them know that this influx was coming. So it's not as if the Biden administration didn't know about it. It's not as if they didn't have time to get prepared for it. But it is clear. They are completely unprepared for what is going on on the border now, and they're going to be even more unprepared for what will be happening in the coming months. What the Border Patrol told me, and this is actually part of the cartel strategy, because of the volume of people coming across the border, the Border Patrol that makes uh, the, the arrest, they have to engage quite literally in babysitting. And while they're doing babysitting, that provides an opportunity for the cartels to be able to bring other people across the border illegally. It's not a talking point to say that there is rampant lawlessness now at our border. It is objective reality. I mentioned to you that the cartels are now giving color-coded wristbands to show how much or which cartel or, you know, that someone's paid up essentially. And that way during their transit, they are at least theoretically not supposed to be uh, sexually assaulted, kidnapped, uh, not, not supposed to be ransomed. That's what it says. To give you a sense of, of how much control the Mexican authorities really have at their own border, the cartels are sending people with wristbands 
uh, and and showing that they're making a lot of money off of this process. The other part of it, and this is what Governor Abbott of Texas is referring to, is you have this. This is exactly a replay of what with the situation in 2018 at our southern border, which Democrats remember. What did Democrats do then? They blamed Trump and they blamed ICE. They blamed the men and women of law enforcement and Border Patrol. Border Patrol, which is about 25 or 30 percent veteran staffed, by the way. But they were saying, oh, Border Patrol is a bunch of evil, evil Nazis. They said horrible things about Border Patrol um, under the Trump administration. They blamed the, the system, the apparatus for all of this. But there, this is a, a straight up replay of that situation. And what it means is that you have people who are showing up to the border and they're surrendering sometimes 20, 30, 50, 100 or more at a time. Well, if you have 50 people who show up in one group in one Border Patrol sector, that requires manpower to take them, bring them in, process them. And Border Patrol just doesn't have it. What do you think? Who, who watches a busy sector of the U.S.-Mexico border once you've had uh, 10 agents, 15 agents taken offline to process 150 detentions? Because that's what this is. They're crossing not at ports of entry. They show up, and I've, I've been there. You can see their place where you could just walk across the border. I mean, there's just, it's, it's like you're walking onto your neighbor's front yard, and they, they walk across the border. Border Patrol sees them because they have sensors or they've got, you know, they've got all kinds of ways of, of monitoring what's going on. And then they drive over and they say, OK, and then the, I mean, there's there's nothing you know hostile or dangerous about these exchanges. It's just the people that show up, you know, generally speaking, the people who show up are saying, uh, OK, I've got credible fear. They've got to get processed. And once that happens, uh, you've got people that now have to take paperwork and they've got to go through all this stuff. And that means the cartels can just start running drugs across the border, opioids, whatever they want, human trafficking, you know, child trafficking, awful stuff going on. No one there right in the United States. You think this doesn't matter? Where do you think the opioids that kill people all across the country come from these days? they're, They're not getting them really from pharmaceutical companies. Not the same way they used to. Now what they get are pills that are made to look like pharmaceutical drugs from the cartels. The cartels do this purposefully because they think it raises their street value. And they're just making them in vats in Mexico. In fact, the precursor chemicals for this often come from China. So you've got Chinese chemicals arriving in Mexico, cartels using them, making these ultra potent. I mean, you take one, you can die. Ultra potent opioids uh, with with who knows what kind of I mean, there's no quality control and they're distributing all across the United States. But there's no problem at our border. America's a nation of immigrants, right? That's what they'll, they'll just start bleeding some nonsense. They won't deal with any of the problems. Yeah, we're not, we're not a nation of illegal immigrants. That's actually not how this all was created. But nonetheless, here we are. This is the, the reality that we face. I mean, who's actually even being turned back? The Biden administration keeps making it sound like, hold on, hold on, we're going to process them. They're processing them for entry. That's why they're all showing up. They're not getting turned away. Everybody knows. Do you think if you've paid 500 U.S. or 1,000 U.S. to a cartel to be, and it's usually a lot more than that, depends on where you're coming from, but if you're just paying the entry fee and getting the wristband, you you think you haven't also talked to people about how you show up and say you have a credible fear of violence? Whole family units in El Salvador, whole family units in Honduras have a credible fear of 
violence from transnational gangs or their government, well, then the whole country has that fear. It's not specific to them. Anybody could say that. This would be like somebody from, you know, uh, from Detroit showing up in your hometown or somebody from Chicago showing up in your hometown and saying, I have a credible fear of violence, so you have to give me a house now. Well, why do you have a credible fear of violence? Oh, because you come from a city where there's violence? I mean, that's true of a lot of people. It's madness, madness what's going on right now. And the Democrats, they're just trying to they're just trying to shuffle things around and hope that people don't figure out that Biden has kicked the border wide open. And that's what that's what we are seeing. I talk to the folks on the border regularly. That's just not true. They are letting basically everybody in. They're not turning away people right now. They're turning away a few, but uh, under Title 40, 42. But they're letting people in, and they're citing them and releasing them. And that's what's happening here. Uh, they, they know there's a huge problem. That's why they, a couple of weeks ago, they opened up. They anticipated this surge. That's why they opened up additional facilities. I've seen some of those facilities when they were, there was nobody in them. Those are now full, and they're going to keep getting full, uh, more and more full. And just think about this. We're already almost at the same level that the highest level of apprehensions we ever did in the 2019 surge took place. That's where we are now, and we're not doing anything to slow it down. In fact, they're actually continuing to encourage people to come across. Why are they coming across right now? What changed? Well, I know they'll point to a lot of things. They'll say, well, COVID is dying down now, or they'll say that there are there were a couple of hurricanes. I saw Jen Psaki say that there are all these different theories out there, but the timing of it is really suspicious, isn't it? Joe Biden becomes president and all of a sudden huge numbers of illegal immigrants at what was clearly a crisis, considered a crisis in the past. Huge number of illegal immigrants are showing up at the border. And why would this stop? Think about this. The Biden administration will fundamentally not enforce immigration law in a way that prevents people from gaming the system to get access to the country when they're under our laws, not supposed to. Right. That's that's what's going on here. They, they won't do it. They're not actually going to enforce the law. So why would why would this stop? Well, it's not going to anytime soon. And, you know, but eventually the only way it stops is if there is some either penalty or some deterrent for showing up and claiming asylum in this way and then getting gaining entry in the United States. But this is the best, I've said it before, this is the best time ever for a, a person who wants to be in the United States and doesn't want to have to go through our legal immigration process in good faith. All you really have to do is, is show up now and then just wait it out until you get to a place of, uh, you get to a place where you can get amnesty, which is what they're all hoping for here. Now, I want to talk more about the, the wokeness cult Right. Because for one thing, if you discuss immigration at all, you, you know why this doesn't bother so many people on the left or some of the elites? For one, they, they like cheap labor. They generally like that idea. They want the Democrats to have more votes and they can just retreat back into this this uh, psychological safe space for themselves where they'll just say uh, we. We don't care what you say about the border. Uh, it's racist to have a problem with massive illegal immigration. That's what they'll say. That's what they'll tell you. They won't even engage on, on the issue. It's just a race issue. That's what they'll say. OK, I mean, there's people from all over the world showing up illegally at the border and and we wouldn't want people illegally coming in from any kind. But they, they won't they won't accept that. They won't accept that at all. And once you understand how little room there is for dissent or disagreement 
uh, on the w- with the woke left, you start to understand how we've gotten to this point where we have a de facto open border, where we have uh, the open censorship of the most powerful media companies, social media companies. Remember, they're supposed to be platforms for every person. That's what they were built on, founded on. That was the, the central promise was that everybody could have a voice online. Everybody can talk to each other and have their presence. And now that they've gotten ultra powerful, they go, actually, we're going to stop that whole thing. There was no principle involved. We're going to shut you down. Question Fauci. We're going to shut you down. Question the election. We're going to shut you down. That's what they do. Now, anybody who has had a classical small L liberal education would see this and think that this is atrocious. They'd see this and they they would assume that there must be a, a tremendous backlash against this from people who even call themselves liberals in the contemporary American sense. But that's not what's happening. I think we're seeing now there, there's a, a an awakening of the conservative mind. There's awakening of the of the reasonable, rational mindset in America where you see they don't care about double standards. They, they don't care about these these things that these uh, expressions like freedom of speech and the First Amendment and all this. These are just slogans that they were willing to mouth when they had to. You know, these are just slogans that they would say. Um, and they didn't really mean it. And now it's their turn in their eyes. Now they're the dominant force in America today, culturally, uh, for corporations and in politics right now. And they're going to just just ram it down our throats. That's their attitude. Doesn't matter what. They don't care about hypocrisy. They don't care about double standards. In fact, they revel in hypocrisy. The woke left thinks that being hypocritical is a privilege of the powerful. They love it. What are you going to do about it, conservatives? That's their attitude. Yeah, we want to crush the GOP forever. What now? They don't worry about fair play or good faith or any of these things. None of that comes into the conversation. That's for chumps. That stuff's laughable. Right. Just remember uh, Frank Herbert, Children of Dune. When I am weak, you know, I ask for freedom because that is according to your principles. When I am strong, I demand obedience because that is according to my principles. That is the, the, really the central ethos of the American left today. When they're in power, it's shut up and do what you're told or else. When they're out of power, it's, hold on a second, you guys promised that we could have the free exchange of ideas and that there are core principles that bind us together as a people and the Constitution and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. All that seems gone now, doesn't it? It's just whatever they can get away with, whatever they want, however they want to do things. And you particularly see this with the wokeness cult in schools. And there is a piece I I don't often tell you you really should read the following. But there's a piece by Barry Weiss, who was at the New York Times. She's a liberal. Or, you know, a center-left person. Uh, she's a Democrat, for sure. She was the New York Times. She left because she realized that at the New York Times, you weren't really allowed to publish alternative points of view on the op-ed page. Think about that. I mean, this if, if you want... A, a metaphor or if you want just clear symbolism of how far the intellectual left has fallen from pretending to have any actual principles or anything that they believe in other than the raw exercise of power and the self-gratification, the gratification of their emotional impulses as members of this cult. All you have to do is look at the fact that you can't even publish opposing opinions on the op-ed page. Can't do it. 
risk your career. Just ask uh, anybody who, who published Senator Tom Cotton about sending in the National Guard. Hold on a second. They sent in the National Guard. Oh, but they did it because of QAnon. Not allowed to do it because of the rioting BLM lunatics. Can't do it. Can't do that. No National Guard. You know, they're trying to burn a church down across from the White House. Can't actually send to the National Guard for that. Starting to see a pattern here, aren't you? Raw exercise, raw exercise of power. No, no principles even worth discussing with the other side. They don't care. And once you get into the wokeness cult in schools, you see just how intellectually and morally decrepit the left has become and how absurd And they're poisoning our culture. They're poisoning our society. And they're doing it in the places where they believe they get the most bang for the buck. They're going to have the most cultural and economic and political influence over the long term. They are rotting these institutions. They are rotting the people who go to them, these elite schools, rotting their brains from the inside. We have not even the beginnings of a counter movement to this. We, we have not even the beginnings of of really the pushback that is necessary here. Uh, this this is a, a, a threat to our sense of America, the, the country that we think we live in. This wokeness cult goes to the very core of it and, and in a way where it destabilizes it on purpose and, and seeks to eliminate and remove some of those. Uh, well, the shared bonds, shared history, shared sense of of what this place is all about. The idea of America itself is under assault from the wokeness cult, and these are powerful individuals and institutions that are getting their way, I mean, in, in ways that I've never even seen before. I mean, you can't, you can't even begin to catalog all the different pressures and all the different chilling effects that are happening right now in our society because the people who are in charge are a bunch of of uh, power mad crybabies who want things the way they want them. They all want to pretend to be victims. They all want to pretend that they're brave and good and courageous when they're actually a bunch of mob minded, petty cowards. That's what's actually happening in the country. And what's going on in the elite schools is uh, perhaps the best example of it you can find right now alongside the social media brown shirts that are running around locking down people's accounts and not allowing them to even converse To speak against this is to put all of your moral capital at risk. That's a line from this Barry Weiss piece at uh, City Journal, which is just just an amazing uh, deep dive into what the title is here. The miseducation of America's elites and how you have parents who are very wealthy. These are wealthy, uh, highly educated, in some cases, overeducated parents who are saying, They're brainwashing my kids to believe crazy stuff like what is going on here? What the heck is this? And the piece goes into uh, this Barry Weiss piece goes into some detail about what this actually means. And, And understand the same way that college ideology has now made its way to the most powerful companies, C suites has made its way into the the Oval Office of the White House is is now the. Uh, the preferred ideology and the way that people speak at the top of the Democrat Party is in line with the kind of nonsense you would have heard at a left wing college campus rally 20 years ago or 10 years ago. Now it's everywhere. The colleges are laboratories for lunacy. But now high schools are and this is this is pointed out in the piece. High schools are the 
preparation grounds for that, right? They, they are prep schools in this case. That's what they actually call them. But they are preparing them to join the wokeness cult. Here is you, you, some of these lines. I mean, some of the stuff that's written in here, and it's all true. I actually know some of the schools that are uh, written about in this. Uh, I know some of them here in New York. My my own sister's and mother's school is one of the crazy places, one of the prep schools that is called out here. So, yeah. Parents who have spoken out, this is a quote, uh, against this ideology, even in private ways, say it hasn't gone over well. I had a conversation with a friend and I asked him, is there anything about this movement we should question, said a father with children in two prep schools in Manhattan. And he said, dude, that's dangerous ground you're on in our friendship. I've had enough of those conversations to know what happens. Yeah, that's right. The wokeness cult members, they're cowards. I mean, inherently, you can't actually believe this stuff and not be a coward because you have to suppress the voices in your head that are saying this doesn't make sense. This isn't helpful. This isn't true. So you're already a moral coward. And when you add on top of that an unwillingness to confront what this is really doing in the broader society, then you have just cowardice across the board. Goes on here. The fear is shared deeply by the children. For them, it's not just the fear of getting a bad grade or getting turned down for a college recommendation, though that fear is potent. It's the fear of social shaming. If you publish my name, it would ruin my life. People would attack me for even questioning this ideology. I don't even want people knowing I'm a capitalist. A student at the Fieldston School in New York City told Barry Weiss in a comment echoed by other students, the kids are scared of other kids. One mother says and that's at Harvard Westlake for our, uh, you know, for those out listening in Los Angeles, Harvard, Harvard Westlake. Yeah. Un, unbelievable, friends, that this is what we are up against. Unbelievable. But this is where it is. This is what's actually happening. You speak out against us. Think about it this way. If you, however old your child is anywhere in the country right now, if your child speaks out in favor of, I don't know, traditional American values or something. And another student even in the class public, you know, puts online that that your child uh, is a racist. That may ruin your kid's life. I mean, that may actually prevent your kid from being able to get into college or get a job or that could follow him or her around forever. That's the kind of really fascistic control. And this is where you start to see. I mean, the Bolsheviks and the fascists, you start to see some of the similarity in mentality. Anything they want to do is justified. Any destruction is just the cost of doing business. Everything is their business. Shut up or else. That's the feeling that, that people now have in this country who just don't agree with this stuff. And in some cases, don't agree with what's obviously untrue. I mean, now, you know, now the statement that uh, only women, only women can get pregnant and have babies. Now that statement is considered uh, untrue, and if you say it, you're a bad person. Now, math is racist, as you know. Math is racist. There, there are, there's a whole movement that says that math is racist because the underlying principle that there can be a right and wrong answer, and therefore there can be people better at something than other people are at something, that there can be a meritocracy, that, that whole concept, that framework of you know achievement in any context can be put into a context where it, uh, it oppresses people and therefore math is racist. You'd say, hold on, that doesn't even make sense. That's math is racist or can be. That's what they're telling you. Goes on in this piece. The atmosphere is making children anxious, paranoid, even insecure. 
and closed off from their close friends. Quote, my son knew I was talking to you and he begged me not to. This is about the author. Another Harvard Westlake mother told me he wants to go to a great university. And he told me that one bad statement from me will ruin us. This is the United States of America. Are you freaking kidding me? End quote. It's all true. One one hint that you challenge the wokeness. And remember, this is not I I think we've gotten used to conservatives in the media. We all say, oh, we're being hounded. Oh, we're being undermined. It's not fair. We're censored. That's all true. And we are. But now it's you. Now you can't say wherever you are listening to this anywhere, you risk your future, your child's future by saying, I don't really think we should give up Shakespeare for white fragility on the reading list. I, you know, I, I don't think that makes you say that at your peril now. And the stuff that is, is just becoming clear. This is another great quote from this piece. I am in a cult. Well, that's not exactly right. It's that the cult is all around me and I'm trying to save kids from becoming members. He sounds like a Scientology defector, but he's a math teacher and one of the most elite high schools in New York City. He is not politically conservative. He says, uh, but I studied critical theory. I saw Dorita speak when I was in college. So when this ideology arrived at our school over the past few years, I recognized the language. I knew what it was, but it was in mutated form. This is radical leftism now as the mandated orthodoxy in the most elite schools in the country. That is what is going on in America today. That's what we see happening. The city of Minneapolis preparing for serious unrest, another word for riots, as a result of the officer Derek Chauvin trial, which is now underway. They've got jury selection happening here. Let's bring in our friend John Cardillo to talk about this. He's a former NYPD member and also conservative commentator, radio and TV host. John, great to have you back. Always good to talk to you, my friend. How are you? I'm all right. What, what are you seeing so far? I mean, one thing from the jury selection that was very clear is that there are people who are deeply concerned about their safety for serving on the jury. Yeah, look, I've got two observations here. One is that I'm a little concerned uh, about uh, the fact that they there was no change of venue. I don't believe Chauvin can get a fair trial in Minneapolis or the Minneapolis area. In fact, when you I was watching a bit of jury selection following it, most of the jurors know this case. They know the case intimately. I don't think there's anybody in the country that doesn't know this case. I mean, George Floyd became a household name, so did Chauvin. It essentially shut our nation down. There was civil unrest in multiple cities. Second, what bothers me is why Chauvin's lawyers opted for a jury trial and not a bench trial. Because typically judges, they're not emotional in these things. Cops typically fare better depending on – and look, justice needs to shake out on the evidence – but judges will typically rule on the evidence because they don't want to be overturned down the road. And, and this is, you know, this look, this is still uh, Minnesota. You're going to have relatively moderate to right leaning appeals court judges. And so Chauvin would have done, in my opinion, anyway. I mean, I watched a lot of cops go to trial and I can't recall, you know, maybe more than five percent of them taking a, a jury trial, opting for a jury trial. I was very surprised they didn't go with a bench trial. But again, the jurors are going to be in danger here. If it's not physical danger, they're going to be doxxed. Their addresses, their, their places of work are going to be put out there. They're going to be harassed. I was shocked that there wasn't a change of venue in this trial. I don't see how that can be fair in any way, shape, or form to the defendant. Do you feel like there's concern that, that Chauvin just doesn't have competent counsel? You know, I don't think that's the case. I just think that, you know, 
been the, it's been the trend where these lawyers we saw this all through the uh, the Mueller investigation. We saw it with General Flynn's initial counsel, Roger Stone's initial counsel. These lawyers have to exist with these prosecutors. So they play a little nicer. I mean, there are a few really good attorneys out there, guys like Mark McKenzie who'll fight the federal government and win. But those guys are really few and far between. They've built enough of a name for themselves where they can go out on their own. They're powerful enough. You know, in a guy like McKenzie's case, his dad was an AG. He was a high-ranking guy in the U.S. Attorney's Office in, in the Southern District. But there aren't many of them. And so these, these lawyers tend to play nicer than they need to with the judges and prosecutors because, look, Chauvin's a high-profile case, but their next case might be a DUI, and they don't want to see that guy run through the ringer out of some kind of vindication against uh, uh, retribution against them by the prosecutors, by the judges. Our system is fundamentally flawed in that respect. I, I think you know, look, judges work for the government, right? They're being paid by the same people the prosecutors are being paid by, so you've got to be really careful. When you have an emotionally charged trial like this, such a high would be called in law enforcement, you know, there's a press case. What would be your I mean, if, if you were defense counsel or, or let's say you were brought in as this would be even be more likely to happen. Right. If you if you were brought in yeah. as an expert witness for the defense, I'm sure you've read I've read the the actual uh, coroner's report and toxicology report that's right. out there. How how would you make the defense case? for Officer Chauvin based on the facts that have been presented up to this point? Well, there's one other element that's not getting much press, but we'll understand why, and that the knee-on-the-neck restraint was an approved restraint by the Minneapolis Police Department. So the, the, the argument is, did Chauvin apply it for too long? But when you combine the fact with it having been an approved restraint, something this guy was taught in the police academy and told, you're allowed to do this, when you combine that, with the meth and the fentanyl and the other narcotics in Floyd's system, I don't see, forget that I was a cop, Buck, just as an American citizen who wants to see fair justice, I don't see how you don't have reasonable doubt that Chauvin, that Chauvin's actions killed George Floyd. The guy had, look, deadly, I mean, deadly levels of fentanyl in his system, a downer mixed with methamphetamine and upper. That's got your heart and your central nervous system doing all kinds of crazy things. Now the guy's using an approved restraint. We don't know if Chauvin was continuing that restraint because of Floyd's erratic behavior at that close, intimate level. There's there's so much doubt here. I don't see how they get a conviction. And I think, lastly, he was overcharged. I think the, the murder charge is too high of a charge. I don't think prosecutors meet that bar. We're speaking to John Cardillo, formerly of the NYPD. He's a conservative commentator, TV and radio host. And, John, I, I, I mean, we're all expecting. I, I think there's nobody out there. You can even see what the city of Minneapolis is doing right now, uh, expecting that this could get very ugly very quickly. And one thing that I believe everybody needs to be prepared for is that even if, let's say, there's a manslaughter conviction, so on, on the lesser charge mm -hmm. than the than the murder two they've, they've uh, put on there. And to me, murder two is just clear overcharging. And when you yeah. see the justice system do something like that, really to uh, to just mollify the mob at some level right i mean to make them feel like things are, are getting a little better for some reason that's disconcerting in and of itself but even if there is a manslaughter conviction it it feels to me like there could there could still be uh riots and and major unrest oh there's definitely going to be and look overcharging is a chronic problem in prosecutors' offices because they want to you know they want to swing for the fences so take police cases out of this the ones that cause riots when Casey Anthony 
was charged with second-degree murder for killing her, her daughter, I was sitting with a good friend of mine. He's a very good uh, criminal defense attorney here in Miami, a former prosecutor, and his wife's a judge. And we looked at each other. We said, she's going to walk. That, that is a, they cannot meet the bar for murder two in Florida. But these prosecutors want these big cases with these big charges and hopefully these big guilty convictions and long sentences. And so they, they swing for the fences. But we know this, right? I mean, if you're a sports fan, you know the guys who are the home run hitters also have the most strikeouts. And so I think they're heading down that road. But, yeah, Buck, no matter what happens here, if they convicted this guy of capital murder, they're going to riot because they're going to say, see, he, it was capital murder. The cops are vicious killers. Let's riot. If he's acquitted, they're going to riot. See, it's unfair justice. A white cop killed a black guy. If it's manslaughter, well, they charge too little. We're going to riot. I don't think there's any escaping riots because that Black Lives Matter, Matter Antifa mob have been told you have permission to riot if the wind changes direction. You have permission to loot and steal and murder and destroy because you're the left and you've been aggrieved and you're people of color and yada, yada, yada. And so I really just feel bad for the residents and the merchants in that city because they're going to be the ones who suffer at the end. John, I also want to ask about the extension now of I think it's about 23 or 2400 National Guard deployed around our capital. And, you know, yeah. that, that's that's a serious deployment. I mean, people have been pointing out it's it's more than than we have in some countries that we consider combat zones deployed. Uh, th- this is this is a serious number of troops. They're extending it for two months. I, I, I sit th- I sit here and I say, when do people just realize how absurd and actually ominous in its own way? It has become that the new Democrat, the Democrats in charge, this new Biden administration are willing to do something so absurd, but also so menacing and, and, and unnecessary. Oh, it's reprehensible. It's disgusting. Right. But I think a lot of this is Nancy Pelosi and that lunatic, that that former general Russell Honore, who's outed himself as a far leftist, almost a radical. He calls conservatives. I mean, he thinks if you're a conservative who voted for Donald Trump. Hell, I think this guy thinks if you voted for Mitt Romney, you're some kind of insurrectionist extremist. I mean, I can't think of a worse guy. Now, listen, when he ran the operation during Katrina, I thought he was a bit of a blowhard. But I said, OK, you know, maybe that's his style. He's a Cajun. He's a general. He came in on the horse. But after seeing his statements of late, this guy's unfit to be in the position as the as the head of the panel deciding what security around the Capitol needs to be. I think this is the most un-American thing. I've seen in a very long time. We have a First Amendment right to petition our government with our grievances. It's enshrined in the Constitution. And now we're being told not only can't we do it, but if we attempt to do it on the steps of the Capitol, we might get sliced by razor wire or shot by armed troops. Buck, I can't think of anything more un-American. I remember when even the mere mention of National Guard, while there were active ongoing riots in Washington, D.C. with with ongoing violence against uh, members of law enforcement. And this was also part of a movement, as we know, uh, the BLM and, and Antifa across the country that that remember Tom Cotton's op ed in The New York Times, you know, send it, did, send yeah. in the guard yeah. that that, mm-hmm. that was they said that that was tantamount to violence, that they was calling for violence against against people of color by saying that there should be National Guard deployed to stop riots in D.C., <laughs> Now they've got the the National Guard there deployed like the parks police or something, just making sure that nobody's littering. It's crazy. Oh, they they wanted to treat Cotton like he was Heinrich Himmler bringing in the SS. I mean, he was vilified. They wanted to kick him out of Congress. They wanted to see this guy excoriated, his family shamed for generations. Biden does it, and it's meh. And then this guy, Russell Honore, comes out, 
and the media celebrating him as if he's some national hero, some savior. I think this guy's a, a tyrannical lunatic who needs to be in a mental asylum for his comments. This is insanity. I mean, you've got a president who doesn't even know, know the name. You saw that clip that's floating. He didn't even know the name of his own secretary of defense. I mean, clearly, Joe Biden is not making these calls. Somebody is making these calls. And I think these calls are dangerous. It might be Nance because he asked her permission. Biden did. If he was allowed to take more questions on his virtual town hall, whatever that charade was. But Pelosi and this guy, Honore, that's a scary combination. And this isn't me being rhetorical. This isn't me being hyperbolic. These people despise the right. They would love to see us dead or in prison. And 2,500 armed troops around the nation's capital in front of and behind razor wire, the optic that's sending to our enemies that America is not America anymore. This is a national security as well as a domestic security issue. Who do you think, John, before that you go, is the most who is really the most powerful voice in this Biden administration? Barack Obama. (laughs) Easily. Hands down, Barack Obama. I think he's the puppet master of all this behind the strings. We're seeing Obama's third term. Just look. You and I have said this how many times on social media and, and when we're out socializing. Personnel is policy. Biden's administration, 90 some odd percent of it are Obama administration appointees. This is Barack Obama's third term. If I had to point to one person who's the most powerful voice in the Biden administration, I'd say Barack Obama. John Cardillo, everybody follow him on uh, Twitter and social media. Well, while you still can, true of both of us before we all before the purge <laughs> Thanks, gets John. us too. John, great to see you, man. Thanks so much. Take care, bud. Bye. I think one of the worst legacies of the Obama presidency was the politicization of the Department of Justice during the eight years of the Obama-Biden presidency. The Department of Justice has a long history of being apolitical, of exercising fidelity to law, of not being used as a partisan weapon to target the enemies of whichever administration is in power. The Obama-Biden administration corrupted that process, and we are still dealing with the consequences. I believe appointees to the Department of Justice should have a demonstrated record of fidelity to law and impartiality, an ability to defend the rule of law. Ms. Gupta, as I look at your record, your record is one of an extreme partisan advocate. Your record is an ideologue. Now, there's a role in our democratic and political process for ideologues, for people that are extreme, radical advocates. That role, I believe, is not being the number three lawyer at the Department of Justice in charge of the impartial and fair administration of justice. Ted Cruz pointing out something that we should all understand at this point and know that we have to do something about it. And that is the weaponization of the Department of Justice for left wing progressive ends that the Democrats do this. This is how they conduct themselves when they can. And it's remarkable, actually, somehow the DOJ is weaponized against Republicans when there is a Republican president, Donald Trump, the special counsel. You know, that's what they did. They managed to turn turn a portion of the DOJ against Trump while it was Trump's DOJ. And then once they get back in power with the Democrat administration, guess what? Now they really go after conservatives and also just chase all kinds of issues that are important to the activist left and they distort the law, right? In areas where the law and the practices 
of uh, or in areas where the, where the law and the practice of it without a view to politics should be very clear. Uh, the, the Democrats no longer recognize that separation whatsoever. And uh, you have a few candidates here. Uh, Associate Attorney General Vanita Gupta, for example, um, who has now apologized for tweets uh, in the past. You have people that it's, it's very clear have extreme points of view, but then they want government power and we're told they no longer have these points of view. And uh, it's it's stunning that we're supposed to believe that. Or that they're he, here's a fundamental lie of progressives in power that they can be activists, that they can be partisans their whole lives. And then all of a sudden, when there is the chance to have the force of government at their disposal, they're going to be fair minded and we can trust them. We can't. That's just the truth. We can't. And so that was that was Ted Cruz. Of course, remember, Ted Cruz, so racist, the Democrats always say Ted Cruz is Latino. <laughs> they always they always somehow pretend that that doesn't mean it. Oh, Ted Cruz is Latino, but he's so racist, right? Because they they pretend like he's he's himself not a minority and in fact a a child of immigrants, right? They they ignore that whole part of his background. It doesn't count for some reason. But he's talking to Vanita Gupta here, DOJ nominee Vanita Gupta. That was that that soundbite we played for you. Um, she's up for the third ranking position in the Justice Department, and she she's trying to apologize for highly hyper-partisan tweets and saying, oh, no, I, I swear I'm going to be, you know, fair-minded and honest or whatever. And, you know, she's, she's somebody who you have to ask, are you going to defund the police? And she says she doesn't want to defund the police. But you look at her tweets, and she took very partisan stances. And Neera Tandon, who was also a hyper-partisan, she was going to lead OMB. She actually, the, finally the Senate said, nope, sorry, not going to happen. So it's, it's uh, amazing, of course. we've got. Oh, and there's another a, a DOJ hopeful here. The, uh, the first, she'd be the first black woman to be, to lead the Department of Justice's Civil Rights Division. Her name is Kirsten Clark. And and Ted Cruz has concerns. I actually spoke to Ted about it earlier this week. Ted Cruz has concerns about her uh, and her fairness and her reasonableness and lack of of ultra partisanship. And of course, that's being that's being cast as inherently racist. I mean, this is somebody who's going to be leading the civil rights division of the Justice Department if she's confirmed. Kristen Clark, who was a big believer in Jussie Smollett. Believe the Jussie Smollett. This is public. This is about her public record. She was, oh my gosh, the terrible hate crime against Jussie Smollett. Let me just ask you, on that alone, would, would you trust someone's judgment to be among the most powerful people in the Department of Justice because they believed the Jussie, they believed the Jussie Smollett story? I mean, you know, at, at what point is that disqualifying? I mean, just literally being so gullible or so cynical that you'd believe the Jussie Smollett story. I never believed it. Go back. You can see my podcasts back uh, when the Jussie Smollett thing happened. The week the story broke, I had a podcast. Jussie Smollett is lying. Okay, that was before we knew all the other stuff, the additional evidence. So 
But yeah, let's let's make Kirsten Clark uh, the head of the Justice Department Civil Rights Division. Sure, that's going to work out great. Is it possible for the government to spend too much money? Are, are there any ill effects from the government spending trillions and trillions of dollars obligating future generations somehow to pay this back, creating all kinds of drag on the economy presently, right? I mean, we, we know that as real interest rates rise, just paying the service on the debt is going to become an onerous financial burden. Uh, just the interest on the debt we've already accrued is going to be a major challenge. So at what point do we all come together and say, now look, I get it. I get it. There wasn't enough focus on this in the Trump years, and that's true. But things were good. Things, things were, were humming along with the economy, so we felt like, all right, nobody wanted to hear it. I told you, I used to occasionally say, I know no one wants to talk about the debt. You remember that. You guys all remember, and gals. Remember, I would bring it up and I knew that we'd be in exactly this position where the Democrats, when they're whenever we were willing to spend, when Republicans were in charge, Democrats were just going to go wild in comparison to that. And that's what's happened here. And and they're not even done necessarily with with using the covid crisis as an opportunity to do just unbelievable amounts of of government spending. I mean, here's here's Pelosi telling everybody that, you know, maybe maybe, uh, you know, four trillion will be the last. Maybe not. Play eight. Madam Speaker, I think even last fall when the last COVID relief bill passed, you were already talking about having to do another bill in the new administration. Do you think this is the last primarily COVID bill that you'll have to take up? You're just going to have to ask the virus if it stops mutating, if it stops spreading and therefore mutating, then uh, this will be. It's up to the virus. You see, it's not up to Congress. This is going to be something that comes up, I think, in the future. They're going to say that even when COVID get ready for this again, mark this one down as one of my buck predictions. You know how often they come true about policy, not about candidates policy. I can see coming candidates. You know, it's always a crapshoot. Uh, but mark this one down. They're going to say the, the argument will be made in the future. And I mean, later this year, I don't mean in five years. I mean, later this year. When there's not enough COVID for any reasonable person to think that this is still a national emergency, which will be a great thing, by the way. But they'll say, oh, but because of what COVID did to the economy, it's not that Biden's policies and it's, it's not that what Congress has done with this Democrat bill is crappy and inflation starts being a problem or whatever. What, what Anything that's going poorly in the economy, and it probably will. I've been saying this. I, I think that Biden is going to find a way to mess this up, even though it should be, the U.S. economy should be a rocket ship this year as the restraints of COVID are slowly but are, are being released. And instead, what we're going to have, I think, is a lot of excuse-making from the Democrats. And then they're going to just go, you know what? The real problem here is that we need more COVID spending, whatever the, the issue, they're, they're going to say later on this year, we need to spend another trillion dollars of stimulus or whatever it is, 500 billion or a trillion or something like that, because the economy was devastated by COVID. That's why it's not working so well. Their answer will be more spending and their justification for the spending will be the COVID that has already basically passed meaning, you know, it's no longer truly a pandemic. And anybody who tries to say, hold on a second, are you just using this 
as another opportunity to to leverage a crisis to get across policy and spending decisions. They'll say, how dare you? You know, it's about saving people after the covid aftermath and all this stuff. That's what they'll say. And I, I, I can see it's coming. You know, the Democrats, in a sense, I hate saying you got to give them credit, but, you know, they played the waiting game. They should have done a covid bill in August with Republicans to help a lot of people, but they don't want to help people. They want to be in charge and they want to help the people they want to help. And they waited until the new year when the Democrats had control. And now they're passing this one point nine trillion dollars. And there's hundreds of billions going to cities. They're going to essentially eliminate the budget deficit for like the city of San Francisco, for example. They're going to dramatically uh, reduce the uh, the budget deficit for the for cities like New York. So what this is, is the federalizing of Democrat strongholds debts uh, courtesy of the taxpayer. So those of you who live in Nebraska, you know, those of you who live in red parts of the country, you know, in uh, in, you know, you name it. Right. So I know we got uh, KFAB Omaha, for example. Right. Those of you who live out out in parts of the country where you don't have a whole lot of, of Democrat control, that's for sure. Your federal taxes now or your federal tax obligations are going to prop up poorly run Democrat cities that are just there. You know why Democrat cities run into the massive financial problems they do? Well, now it's because of the flight of people that don't want to deal with their crazy policies anymore. Rising crime, filth on the streets, all that. But beyond that, it's uh, or, or, or in a more standard sense, it's Medicaid and it's public sector unions. So paying retired teachers and transit workers pensions and free health care for people. That's what, uh, you know, Medicaid, that's what drives local and state debt in Democrat strongholds. So that's now just being, uh, I, I said federalized, but really it's just being socialized. As in now the rest of the country gets to, is, is bailing all that out. That's what's actually happening here. So they're getting their way on all of this. But it's very hard to have real opposition right now, or at least to feel like there's a strong opposition to this right now, because when Trump was in office, and a lot of you know, I was saying, I know nobody wants it. We're just supposed to run around with MAGA hats on and not question the spending, not question, you know, that Jared was the second most powerful person in the United States government. I mean, no questions allowed about any of this. Okay. Well, now here we are. And here's Claire McCaskill on this place seven. Yeah, it turns out, too, Joe, that empathy is a pretty good uh, measure of political armor. Uh, Joe Biden has been disciplined. His White House has been disciplined. This has all been not about him. He doesn't make this about him. It's all about the American people. It's all about the American worker. Uh, you look at this COVID relief plan and the hypocrisy around the price tag is just stunning. I mean, you and I have talked many times about how deficit and debt went out of the Republicans' vocabulary over the last decade. But this price tag on this bill is almost identical to the big tax bill that the Republicans passed. But the big difference is who's going to get helped? It's going to be the vast majority of Americans that get help from this bill, not the top 1%. So Biden is staying focused on policies that help people, not on politics. 
And it turns out that that's a winning formula. And if he keeps doing that, there's a bunch of policies they're going to push that have that same magic 70 percent support marker. If he keeps doing that, um, you're going to see us have a good midterm, not a bad midterm. Uh, We'll see about that. Oh, we'll see. Remember, Obama came in 2009, trillion dollar stimulus, going to remake America, going to fundamentally transform the country. How do those midterms look? Anybody remember? Yeah, remember the Tea Party wave? Now, now many of the best known Republican office holders won office the first time in 2010 or, or in 2012. But that's that was the Tea Party wave in response to what the federal government was doing in response to a lot of things, the bailout of the Wall Street banks and the trillion dollars of spending to, uh, you know, what end? I remember shovel-ready jobs, that became a laugh line, that became a joke. It's unfortunate, but that's what ended up happening. But yeah, Claire McCaskill here with, of course, the, uh, the classic, oh, just listen to us, we have 70% rep- uh, support for the policies that we're chasing down. They, they absolutely do not. And as soon as people see what this ends up doing to the country, as soon as people see what the actual effects of this are, that's the thing. Democrat policies are unpopular when people feel them and see them in effect. Democrats make them sound good when they're proposing things because they focus on what is what is minimal or what is transient and they ignore what is real and substantial and impactful. Uh, But that's what you'll see here with uh, with the. Basically, two trillion dollars of spending, four trillion dollars of excess spending. I mean, it's like we're running an experiment. Can we actually debase the American dollar? Can we do that? It's like our government's trying to see if that's possible, trying to see if that's actually something that they can accomplish. And and if that is their goal, I will say they're making some pretty strong moves. You know, from the Biden administration that they say it will make its decisions based on science. What's the science? behind not saying it's safe for people who have been vaccinated, receive two doses to travel? You know, that's a very good question, John. And and the CDC is carefully heading in that direction. Uh, You know, when we when when Dr. Walensky made the announcement a day or two ago about the fact that when you have a couple of people, two or three or more people in a family setting, both of whom are vaccinated, even if it's someone from another, a friend that doesn't have to be a member of the family. That was the first in a multi-step process that they are going to be rolling out. They're being careful, understandably. They want to get science. They want to get data. And then when you don't have the data and you don't have the actual evidence, then you've got to make a judgment call. And I think that's what you're going to be seeing in the next weeks. You're going to see little by little more and more guidelines getting people to be more and more flexible. The first installation of this is what can vaccinated people do in the home setting. Obviously, the next one is going to be what you're asking. What about travel? What about going out? What about getting a haircut? What about doing things like that? That's all imminently going to be coming out. Uh, Here you have Fauci telling you that it's not all based on the data, that the, the data isn't what's making the determination. They're just making judgment calls, folks. The CDC is a partisan abomination. Okay, the CDC is just a bunch of bureaucrats sitting around who don't want to be criticized, want to keep their jobs, who have been useless, useless 
during this pandemic. What has the CDC done that has made a major difference during the pandemic? Tell you to wash your hands, social distance, and mask up. Well, they were kind of late on all that, too, weren't they? But that, that's where they're so useful. The CDC director said this past fall that masks were more effective than a vaccine. He said that in Congress like a lunatic because masking has become this religious belief for people now that if you're a good person, you mask. But where is the huge benefit? How has the CDC really justified its budget? The billions and billions of dollars spent on it every year. I'm just wondering, how has Dr. Fauci justified all the power that he's had in his hands? They have used this term, the left, the Democrats, the Fauciites have used this term, the science, when what they really mean is we want this to be the decision made and we won't we will not allow any dissent. We will not allow any debate. Shut your mouth. Do it or else. Because it's not the science telling you when it's safe to open schools the same way. It's not the science telling you how much red meat you can eat. You make that determination. A doctor can advise you. A doctor can say, hey, you know, maybe don't have red meat three times a day. It's not good for you. Maybe, you know, watch. By the way, they're not even sure if red meat, you know, is it good for your, you know, is it bad for your heart? Is it good for your heart? I mean, it changes all the time. But th- this is the truth of what has gone on here. They have bastardized. They have undermined the concept of objective truth in scientific inquiry by pretending to be de- defenders of it. And Fauci is, is the worst the worst example of this that you could possibly point to. But Fauci is appalling. I mean, really, this guy, he's just a little tyrannical Democrat bureaucrat. And, and I'm still furious about how he wasn't honest about what he knew and didn't know, where he's been right, where he's been wrong. Here, here he is, the usual. You could play every, every two weeks or so for the last 50 weeks, you've had Fauci going, you know, you do it just two more weeks or else, you know, you're going to have a, you're going to have a problem. We're worried. You know, if you don't listen to us, we're worried. Bad things are going to happen as if that's helpful. Here he is with, oh, if you don't listen to me, there's going to be a surge. Play six. When you see Texas lifting its mask mandates, when you see pictures from Idaho of, of kids burning masks uh, and the same being called for in Texas. What's your reaction to that? You know, it, it's it, it's concern, John. I mean, we we understand people's need to get back to normal and we are going in that direction. But when you start doing things like completely putting aside all public health measures as if you're turning a light switch off, that's quite risky. We don't want to see another surge. And that's inviting one when you do that. We don't want to see another surge. Do you think that he's going to go on TV when there's no surge in Texas and everything's fine in a month, which it will be my prediction. All right. Just remember, I'm going to go back to this. Do you think he's going to go on TV? And be like, you know, I was wrong. I got to stop just always saying, oh, gosh, watch out. Watch out. I got to stop being chicken little. The sky is falling. You know, do you think that he's ever going to admit this? Never. Has he ever? Has Dr. Fauci one time ever said, you know what? I was wrong. No, instead what he says is no, nobody could have known. Oh, nobody could have known what was going to happen. But at every stage in this, he acted like he did know what was going to happen. Play five. The extraordinary capability of this virus 
to just do things that you would not have anticipated. I mean, if if you had turned the clock back a year um, and when we had the decision of shutting down travel from Europe, which was a year ago tomorrow on the 11th of, of March, I, I never would have imagined, even though I've been through multiple outbreaks of different diseases, the thought that you would have 525,000 people in America to have died and about, you know, 28 million infections in this country is would have really been unimaginable. So this virus is a very formidable enemy, if you want to be metaphorical about it. It's just extraordinary. What exactly did the public health establishment do to push us through this in a way that we can look back and say, wow, that really made a difference. That really saved a lot of lives. Social distancing. Yeah, that's right. The little foot, the little foot uh, symbols in my elevator where I live telling me where to put my feet in the elevator for social distancing purposes. That was really effective. Only cowardly idiots believe this stuff anymore. We've got our friend Carol Markowitz here talking to us about lockdowns, Fauci, school reopen, and oh, so much more. She is a columnist for the New York Post, and she's got a piece up this week on Texas's reopening, but she's obviously also very focused on things going on here in New York City. Carol, great to have you. Thank you so much for having me. So I'm, I'm happy to hear that now the, the great St. Fauci is, is willing to say that Sometimes they don't really have the data at the CDC, but they actually just have to come up with a judgment call, almost like when you're making a judgment call, other people should be allowed to question it and maybe disagree with it. So maybe there's a crack now in the science, as it's always been laid out for us. Right. Well, even a few weeks ago, uh, he said that you, you can hug each other when you're both been vaccinated. And even though they don't have the data on that, that he said, just use your common sense, which uh, I hadn't heard anybody mention that we should use common sense over the course of a year when I see people wearing multiple masks outside. So he only seems to want to use that common sense in one direction, which is always like the stricter, most difficult, most, you know, um, humanity insulting direction. And uh, I'm really tired of it. I'm sure that you and your listeners are, too. You know, in USA Today, I don't know if you saw this, there are there are a number of scientists who straight up say uh, in the in a piece that they wrote that's that's at USA Today uh, about how they believe the CDC has misused. Here's here's the piece. It's it's CDC misinterpreted our research on opening schools. It should loosen the rules now. Dr. Tara Henderson, Dr. Monica Gandhi, Dr. Tracy Beth Hogue, Dr. Daniel Johnson. OK, these are people yeah. that pulled together the actual data on school reopen, they are writing a piece to say the CDC is wrong in its guidance based upon what our data actually says. I mean, yeah. how much more of this do we have to see before people realize there's a problem here? Well, I think I think people even knew, I think the CDC was sort of open about, not, not open about it, but they uh, said that schools should open. And then a few days later, they had a meeting with teachers unions. And then they said that schools, you know, maybe shouldn't open. Um, and so it was obvious what had happened, right? I think I think everybody understood that they had become politicized and the Biden administration sat them down with the unions and said, you know, wait for the barrel of money that I'm going to deliver. Um, and so I, I don't know why anybody trust them at all anymore. I think that they've been completely corrupted during this process. And it's been obvious. I, every time I, I mention a 
CDC head Walensky, I want to add, you know, we don't know if she's talking in her personal capacity because when she said schools should be open even before teachers are vaccinated, Jen Psaki very famously said, um, you know, she was talking in her personal capacity and it, it wasn't the, a reflection of the Biden administration nor the CDC. Right. That's that's remarkable is that you could have the, the head. This would be like the secretary of defense stands up and says, you know, I think we should we should invade Sweden. And it's well, the secretary of defense was speaking in his personal right. capacity. Right. I mean, right. Right. Yeah. Every time I mention her or anything, uh, I've been adding, you know, but is she speaking in her personal capacity? Because we don't know. She's broken her completely. Her uh, yeah, just nobody takes her seriously anymore because of the White House. And it's. You know, unfortunate for her. You know, one thing that I, that I think we are seeing now as well, uh, and it's based on, on on recent polling data that I've seen, is that the there's really a lasting and lingering effect. Um, it's the, in in particularly very blue places where Fauci worship is very high. Places like New yeah. York City, for example, where there are, there are folks who are saying that they they want to continue these restrictions. Even at, even long after they want to continue on their own, even long after the mandates are lifted. That's what I right. find so remarkable. I, I think it's so crazy to me that they're admitting it um, out loud. Like it's this is a crazy thing to say. I don't you know, people are, are literally saying they don't want this to be over. And I, I just it makes me really angry because these people are all the people who have spent this time in their pajamas at home, working from home. Nobody, none of these people missed a paycheck, right? Um, none of these people had to lay awake at night wondering if their small business was going to survive and then figuring out that no, it couldn't. Um, and so like all these people who spent the year baking banana bread and living on their Pelotons, they're, they're sad to see it end. Like, I don't feel sorry for them. I, I, I think they need to be called out and like confronted because I, it, this is a, a really, awful thing to say that you don't want this to end I, even if you enjoyed your life for the last year like think about everybody else who did right and all i keep saying this the, the people you know no one's forcing you to go out to benefits and galas and crowded bars like you want to stay home on your peloton stay home on your peloton it's fine right yeah exactly yeah it's that that's exactly it it's um you know, you, you you can keep living this life. And, you know, the thing is, I think that they're all worried that they will have to eventually go back into the office. But again, people have been going into work this whole time. I think that the idea that they um, that they're that everybody's been baking banana bread is just it's not true. I've been I've been going life. into the office since September or October now. So I sort of yeah. sit around saying, OK, what's with all these people that think that, you know, no. Oh, we're all in lockdown. No, we're not. Actually, we're not in right. lockdown. We haven't been in lockdown. It's lunacy. But just right. I, I want to ask also about, mm -hmm. you know, there's the New York version of trying to slowly just they really want to grip onto this thing. It seems a lot of people do here. Unfortunately, what's going on in Texas with the reopen? So Texas announced that they were ending the, the statewide mask mandate and that they were opening everything at full capacity. Obviously, businesses can still um, ask for mask wearing inside. That's, you know, the standard even in places like Florida, which are quite open. Um, but Texans were mad and they had sort of had enough. Their Texans are known for being very freedom loving and they didn't think that their governor was reflecting that. Um, so and it's amazing because it's it's not like these mask mandates did a single thing. States with mask mandates largely had worse results than states without them. People will know to protect themselves. They know how to protect themselves and they don't need the state to tell them that you must wear a mask again in, in zero risk situations like outdoors when you're by yourself. Um, and the, ma the mask mandates did not add anything to the, the health benefits of those states.
Carol Markowitz, everybody. She's been a, a fierce you. warrior for school reopen, which I really appreciate. Check out her latest column in the New York Post for this week. Carol, great to have you. Thanks so much, Buck. And another one. Six now. Count them. Six accusers of sexual harassment against the governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo. Another one comes forward now. This one uh, written about the New York Post. Here you go. A female member of Andrew Cuomo's staff has been the sixth person to accuse him of inappropriate conduct. The woman told associates that Cuomo touched her inappropriately late last year inside the governor's mansion after she was summoned there on official business. The Times Union said it was withholding her name because she couldn't be reached for comment. Her allegations recently reached a supervisor in the executive chamber and were reported to Cuomo's counsel and the office of Attorney General Leticia James. On Monday, James announced the hiring of outside lawyers, including former acting Manhattan U.S. Attorney June Kim, to investigate the mushrooming cloud of sexual harassment allegations and other inappropriate behavior by Cuomo. Another accuser against Andrew Cuomo. Now we're at six. I have to wonder at what point at what point have we crossed the threshold where the Democrats can no longer play this game that the the usual rules that would be in place for other people, right? The rules are women must be believed. That was what they said about Kavanaugh. That was how they set up the discussion around other allegations in the past when they wanted the person accused to be destroyed. But this time around, it was, well, okay, there's two accusers. When there's three, come and talk to me. And then there were three accusers against Cuomo. Then it's, well, when there's four, now five, now six, I, I wonder if we get to 12 accusers, is that enough for women to be believed? Now, what you are going to see is a master class from Andrew Cuomo in delay and uh, delay. And I would say delay and pray. But I don't know how much of that he really does, but essentially just grind down the system by using the system. This is a guy who understands this very, very well. These calls for investigation. This allows Democrats. This is the whole kabuki theater that we see here of Democrats saying, oh, no, we take these allegations really seriously. There's an investigation underway. Well, how quickly are we going to see findings from this investigation? How could anything from this investigation turn into anything other than his word versus the words of the accusers who are now on record. They've come forward. It, it isn't as though this is from behind some veil of secrecy. So what is there to make us believe that this will result in anything other than Cuomo saying that's their opinion? I have my opinion. There's a report that will come out from Leticia James's office, I'm sure, at some point, And it will say, that, you know, the usual required slogans about believing women and about how we need equality in the workplace and all the stuff that you'd expect Democrats to put in there. And it'll say that something along the lines. Now, this is my prediction. It'll say something along the lines of the allegations against Cuomo are entirely credible, but we cannot rule out, you know, beyond a reason of a doubt that maybe these were misinterpreted gestures or that perhaps there was just a, a difference of, of opinion about this. They'll leave some wiggle room just a little bit for Governor Cuomo to say, see, the investigation didn't find any certain wrongdoing. I'm cleared. It won't clear him, but it won't indict him either. Or not that this would be a criminal issue, but it won't uh, 
metaphorically or, you know, in, in the in the broader sense of the term, indict Andrew Cuomo. This guy's going to stay as governor. And he's then going to be somebody who we all know will wait a little while before he starts settling scores, which will be a, a remarkable thing to see. He's going to start settling the scores against everybody who came out against him here. I wouldn't want to be uh, Ron Kim if, if Cuomo politically survives this fiasco. You can start to think of the names off the top of your head of people that he's going to go after. You know, de Blasio, I got to say, has shown more backbone speaking out against Cuomo than I've ever seen him with anything else. So, you know, it must be deeply personal. You know, at some level, de Blasio has to really despise this guy because overall, they're both very transactional Democrats. But I I will say this. De Blasio is an ideologue. And I, you know, that that's something that comes across. He really believes the nonsense that he spews a lot of the time, which I know is scary for a reasonable person. But he does think that what he's saying about equity and, and about wokeness and about redistributing wealth and all these things, I think that he actually thinks that makes him a good person. And that's what needs to be done, as crazy as that sounds, uh, especially if you listen to enough of de Blasio's nonsense. And then there's also all the incompetence and, and just his famous or infamous uh, work ethic, which is that he has no work ethic. But Cuomo is something else. He's a different kind of Democrat because he's really a Cuomo log or, you know, he's somebody who is first and foremost a Cuomoist. He is about himself in this role, in this position. And it doesn't really matter what he has to do. It doesn't really matter what he accomplishes or doesn't accomplish. Does it lead to book deals and adulation and public opinion polls that show him doing very well with the general New York state population and the national population. Remember, he became a national political figure out of this. He became somebody who was talked about as a possible last minute entrance uh, entrant into the Democratic presidential primary. He was, as I I think I played that that uh, audio for you, that uh, that soundbite. Sorry, I say audio. It's a little too, you know, sounds a little too nerdy. I mean, you know, that that soundbite of. I believe it was Amy Robach on ABC News reading out to Cuomo on national TV that he was the second most trusted Democrat as of last summer in America, just after Barack Obama himself. I mean, if you're a Democrat in this this era we're in and someone even says your name in the same sentence as Barack Obama, that that's the highest praise you could ever possibly achieve. So. That's where he was. And now Cuomo has six women who have come forward and said said that he is a, a, a sketchy guy. And the way that they've accused him too. notice that the allegations against Kavanaugh were not rooted in any fact whatsoever. I mean, that's really, for me, the benchmark through which or by which we must generally gauge Democrat allegations of this kind, because it was the most grotesque attempt at a political assassination, a character assassination that I've ever seen in public in my lifetime. There's nothing quite like Brett Kavanaugh, who is like the ultimate Boy Scout, golden resume, good guy next door that you could trust, you know, to leave your kids with your wife, with your checkbook with. Right. That's who Brett Kavanaugh was. It was very apparent. And yet they wanted to ruin and destroy him and they wanted to act like they really believed that he was a serial gang rapist in high school. And no one had ever heard of this or thought of this before. 
So the allegations themselves were outrageous and outlandish and, and I would argue not credible on on its face. Right. It, the, the belief that there could have been a gang rape ring with little Brett Kavanaugh running it in the elite suburbs of Washington, D.C., and no one had ever heard a word of this before now after over 30 years. You know, there were drugging women and all I mean, young women, you know, teenagers, basically. There's just no way. The things that are being said about Andrew Cuomo, you can all see it, right? It's a guy who kind of loves himself. I, I know that there's a, this is another uh, one of these stories. There's an anti-Cuomo billboard out there. Uh, it's demanding, paid for by Cat Sullivan, it says. And it's demanding Cuomo's impeachment. This appeared today in Albany. Six strikes, six strikes Cuomo's out. Free the nipple, fire the boob, the billboard says. So referring to the fact that he apparently has nipple rings. I've always thought that that was some kind of urban legend, but there is this photo. I, I look, I, I, I don't want to get into this guy's deep into this guy's personal life and personal hygiene and all the rest of it. But if that if that is true, that is wow. Um but back to what, what these women are saying, the, the allegations that they're making, the things that we're, we're hearing from them, all of it rings true. All of it seems in, entirely like something that this, this uh, governor, this very powerful man who clearly wants to try to leverage his position as the governor of New York State would say to a woman or do to a woman to try to leverage the circumstances to his advantage for sexual purposes. They're, they're not going notice that there's not any outlandish. Oh, he drugged me and, you know, held me in a dungeon against my will or something. There's, there's nothing like that's what they did against Kavanaugh. There's nothing along those lines. All these women, the allegations are very similar. He's a touchy, grabby guy who is makes it very clear that if you want to advance your career, you might want to get with the love gov, so to speak. That's what they're saying. It's entirely believable. But I'm telling you, he's going to withstand this. He's going to withstand it. And there are people, you know, there's that that phrase from the show, The Wire, which if you've never seen is it's very gritty. It's it's worth watching. It's about the drug trade and you know police and uh, narcotics uh, work in Baltimore in the 90s um, it, or the early 2000s. If you come at the king, you best not miss. If you come at the Cuomo, you best not miss would also be true, I think, in New York state politics. We can all see how this is likely to play out here. There's just not going to be enough to remove him by force, meaning impeachment. And there's no way he's going to resign. And I am quite certain, based on everything I've heard about this individual, Andrew Cuomo, based on everything I know about this governor, that he has no intention whatsoever of resigning or of letting bygones be bygones. He is going to want payback. The show ain't over yet, folks. It's time for Roll Call. Let's get to it. Uh, let's get to it. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Team Buck at iHeartMedia.com if you want to email us. And please remember... Give me a review on the Apple Podcast platform. Five stars for the Buck Sexton Show. And also um, give us a written review talking about what you like about the show, please. 
Uh, I don't even care. If you just write, producer Mark is awesome, he keeps us safe and warm at night, and you write that ten times, and as long as you give us five stars, you're doing us a big solid. So please Some give us... Some people have done that already. Thank you to the one person yeah. who said, I'm doing this for producer Mark. I appreciate it. There we go. So thank you so much for... Yeah, see, even producer Mark is asking nicely for you to do this. Right, producer Mark? Are you insinuating that I'm not? I don't normally ask nicely, and I'm not. No, a nice no. Person? I'm just you know. I mean, maybe a little bit, but I'm just saying. Even you're asking people kindly to. Uh, well, if I the, don't ask them kindly, they're not going to do it. That's true too. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Well, anyway, producer Mark is saying, please, if you would give us the five star review on the Apple Podcast platform, and uh, and make sure is there a re- review function on the iHeart app or no? No, I think Apple is the only one that has a review function. Gotcha. That's what I thought. Because you can also always listen on the iHeart Radio app which is a great platform with which to do it. All right, let's get to it because I got some roll call. Although, wait, I did want to say, say something. Producer Mark, I managed to both erase an old smart TV to factory settings and put a new smart TV in all by myself last night. Wow. I was very un, very unboomerish, as as the kids say of me, I, you know. I feel like I am almost tech tech competent. And you didn't even text or call me once. I did not bother That's you once impressive. with this. What I want everyone to know. Usually, I'd, I'd say, "Producer Mark, you know my toaster's broken," yeah. and then he goes, "You know, uh, Buck, I have a life, and it's time for me to do other things." I say, "But I need help," and then he sends me a text about how to fix it. So, but uh, I, no, last night I figured it all out by myself. So that's good. But here's the thing: What do you do with an old TV? Uh, I guess you just throw it out, or you could try. It just feels it. like you really like it. Still, kind of works, you know. I mean, do you need a TV in the bedroom? I don't know. No, not a fifty-five incher. Gosh, that's a big, that's a big uh, TV for the for the the boudoir. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I'm just thinking about it. I'm just thinking. I'm think sure you'll it. find a good use for it. Maybe somebody needs it. Somebody that you know. Uh, oh, I just realized a boud- the boudoir is actually a woman's bedroom. Yeah, <laughs> I was wondering about that's that. Probably right. not the word I would use, but not really the word I would use either. It. Yeah, yeah, but uh, fair enough. Um, but yeah, uh, I'd say uh, I, I managed to set it all up. But now I'm excited because I wasn't able to get in my Amazon Prime, which meant that I couldn't watch my Goliath show, which was very disappointing for me. So, and uh, yeah, that's, that's I what I don't I'm think saying. you've ever touched a piece of technology without you having some sort of problem with it. Technology has an allergy to me because they know that I'm old school. So all the things with the electricity running through them, I touch them. And they throw a fit because they're like, we know you don't like us. And I'm like, yeah, the feeling is mutual technology, but let's just, you know, let's just get through this. You know, that's where we are. Well, we're going to have to get you a typewriter and you'll do the show off a rotary phone and then we'll be cool. Well, radio is an old school technology, to be fair. So, yeah, but we use much newer technology. We wouldn't be able to do what we're doing right now in 1985. Yeah, we definitely wouldn't be able to do it in like the 1930s. That's for that's sure. For 1940s, sure. you know, when radio first started to get really in widespread, uh, you know, broader usage. It's still kind of amazing. I think about the fact that the radio wave from the show just goes all over the country and it flies through the air and people can listen to my voice. It's not kind of amazing when you think about it. Yeah, it just flies through the air. That's exactly how it works. Buck. Well yeah, done. it flies around like Santa Claus. It just flies around in the air. That's how it goes. All right, Alex. Let's see what you got in mind for us, Alex, here with our roll call session. Hey, Buck and Mark, what are the chances that Obama is the the hand inside the puppet we know as Joe Biden? I always believe that Obama picked Biden as his veep because he was in extreme mediocrity and everyone knew it long before Maisie Hirono took over as the dumbest person in the Senate. 
It was common knowledge that Biden held that position for a long time. The guy was constantly wrong for decades. I think Obama's playing a very large role here. What do you think? Love the show. Well, it's funny you bring that up, Alex, because our our guest earlier in the show, uh, John Cardillo, said exactly that, that he believes this is the third Obama term and that Obama from behind the scenes quietly. Think about how easy it is. All he has to do is reach out to Joe, give him a call, give him a text. Obama behind the scenes is the most powerful. This is what John said, John Cardillo, uh, that he's the most powerful person in the Biden administration, which look, I I think on on big issues, that's that's very likely to be the case. Uh, it, it would not does not surprise me at all, uh, or the the notion doesn't surprise me at all that that maybe Obama is in fact really heavily involved behind the scenes in major decision making from Biden. But also remember that it's all of Obama's people, really, all of his appointees and everything else. They're the ones around Biden. So yeah, you you are getting an effect. You are getting something. Uh, something like a third Obama presidency here. And doesn't it kind of feel like it? Aren't there a lot of similarities right now? Remember, we had a financial collapse in 2008 or you know, financial crisis, whatever. And, uh, you know, the mortgage meltdown. And then we get a 2009 and the left is totally ascended. Now, I will say this. They were far more enthusiastic and excited about Obama than they are about Biden, which makes sense. I get that. But the same... We won. You lost. Take it right in the teeth. You know, Republicans, we don't care what you say or think. We don't care what the common practices in our politics have been in the past. But we're just going to have the raw exercise of power. Doesn't it feel now like it did a little bit in 2009? We got steamrolled on Obamacare. We got steamrolled on the trillion dollar stimulus spending. You remember all that? A lot of similarities, you know. Yogi Berra, it's deja vu all over again, right? I mean, a lot of similarities here. So, Producer Mark, Yogi Berra was a uh, Yankees coach, right? Oh, my God. Just just met, just messing with you. I mean, yes, he was, but, like, that is not what he is famous for. What do you mean? He was a Hall of Fame player. Oh, I actually thought he was famous for being a coach. <laughs> oh, my God. I did not know that. He was the catcher for the only perfect game in World Series history. But he's got a great a great uh, quote. So. He's got a lot of great quotes. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. Who is the who is the single greatest sports coach of all time? Uh most people would probably say Vince Lombardi. Uh, who is the man who the trophy for football is named after? The Lombardi trophy. Yeah, no, I know what it is. Okay, yeah, yeah. The thing, the thing that Tom Brady recklessly threw across the water outside yes. of Tampa, and everyone's, oh my gosh, he threw the trophy from boat to boat. I mean, when Remember you that? have like ten of them, who who really cares? Yeah, he's got plenty. Uh, he's got he he's got spares in case they in yeah, case he, they lose. He had one, another one in his pocket. It doesn't really matter. Yeah, but there's that. Anyway, yeah, yeah. I think um, I think it is kind of like the Obama administration all over again. So I, I would just add that that's that's true. That's where we are. That's what we're seeing happen. And that's also why we need to have a real movement of opposition as, as well as a kind of uh, an, a, a counterculture, if you will, to the cancel culture. We, we need to really get something going that captures the minds and captures the imaginations of those Americans right now who feel uh put upon, disenfranchised, uh, singled out, harassed, uh, undermined. 
purged, and we we haven't really got it. But it's early. It's early. No, I want to be a part of it. Look, I, I think that Trump is going to play a role in all this for sure. But, you know, are we really do we want to have the just the pendulum effect of, OK, we're going to go. We're going to mount up with another Trump attempt to uh, to defeat Biden. I, we'll see. Wanda. Hey, I'm writing regarding the increase of immigrants and belief that they'll vote for Democrats. First, I don't believe all new immigrants would vote this way if they fully knew the platforms of the parties and specific candidates. My husband is an immigrant from a communist country, and most immigrants are here for American opportunities, and therefore, if given factual information, would choose to vote to support the American ideals of freedom. Thus, it is, a sens- it is essential that there is a movement to help inform immigrants. An added bonus is that this information movement would benefit current citizens in becoming more knowledgeable voters. Thanks for all you do. I am thankful to be a listener of your show. Well, Wanda, we are thankful that you are a listener of the show. And you touch on some very important things here, so I want to spend a, a minute on this. For one thing, understand that when I'm talking about the surge of immigrants at our southern border and their likelihood to vote for Democrats, which is just a matter of, of recent history and, and numbers and statistics, uh, I'm talking about illegal immigrants. These are illegal immigrants. You know, once you request asylum through this process and have not showed up at your hearing, you are then in the country illegally. That's so. So they're sort of they're pre illegal immigrants in a sense, uh, and they've also broken the law by coming into the country illegally. But that's a different categorization, uh, and it has different. There are different voting patterns than what you're talking about, which is just immigrants in general. I mean, I know there are plenty of immigrants who listen to this show, and there uh, there might even be some illegal immigrants listening to the show. I, I haven't heard from any in recent memory. Um, but there are definitely lots of immigrants who listen to this show, but they have a different view of the country and its laws and their likelihood to vote for Democrats or Republicans is different from people who come here illegally, that their first act on U.S. soil is an illegal one. And then you added that your husband's an immigrant who is flees a communist country. And I mean, I will say this, a lot of the best and most patriotic Americans who came here as immigrants, but a lot of my, my favorite people in this country, just period, are immigrants who left countries where they truly experienced what authoritarianism and and a, a version of the cancel culture, in essence, where the people in power can shut you down for the wrong thoughts and those in power can determine what the boundaries of acceptable debate and how much property of your own that you get to keep and all the rest of it. People who have experienced a real lack of freedom have a particular love of it when they experience its its opposite or when they regain their freedom. And that's why immigrants from from Cuba, from the former Soviet bloc, any former Soviet country, uh, immigrants from Cuba, immigrants from uh, from countries like Cambodia that that came here to flee the uh, the Khmer Rouge or after the Khmer Rouge. And, you know, you look at people who have left totalitarian societies and come to America and experience freedom here, and they're just, they're, they're, they're some of the best Americans you'll ever come up because they love this place. You know, you talk to Cubans in southern Florida who had any experience or whose families had any experience of the Castro regime, they love America. I mean, they, they you know, will do and they'll go to any length 
I had a, a friend years ago who was Cambodian. Same thing. This guy uh, was doing all kinds of, of stuff to serve his country, and he loves America. I mean, in the true in the truest sense. So, you know, and like I said, former Soviet bloc, too. I mean, you talk to anybody who lived in uh, anybody who lived in Ceausescu's uh, Romania or you talk to somebody who lived in in Bulgaria or in in, uh, you know, occupied East Germany. You look at any of these places behind anywhere, anywhere behind the Iron Curtain and, and you say and and they experience American freedom now and you realize they really get it. And they also know that it's not impossible for us to go and become, as a country here in America, what they left. So I, I really, they, they add so much wisdom and so much uh, important perspective. Immigrants from immigrants, legal immigrants to America from authoritarian countries are critical freedom fighters in America today. More roll call. We've got uh, our friend Michael writing. Hey, Uncle Buck. My name's Michael. We have the same last name. All righty, cool. Just wanted to tell you that me and the other sections are showing you and the other conservative voices of our nation support from the liberal Northeast. Well, Michael, it's great to have another Sexton up here in the liberal Northeast who is uh, supportive of the Buck Sexton show. Please pass the buck. Tell people about it. And, you know, the more that if we it's like I always say, if we had every person who listens to this show, get one new person to listen to the Buck Sexton show uh, on, on either your local radio station or podcast. Uh, either in the iHeart app or the Apple podcast store, if every person got now look, getting everyone to get one person, maybe he's asking a lot. But I'm saying if we did that, I mean, this this show would go from being a widely listened to radio show across the country to massive, massive. So, you know, if if 10 percent of if one in 10 people listening to this got one new person to become a listener to the Buck Saxon show to join the Freedom Hut, it would be a game changer. So that's the people ask, how can you help? you believe in what I do, the way you can help, a really easy way is to tell somebody else about the free product that I'm putting out every day, which is the Buck Sexton Show, and get them to try to listen to it. I don't think there's a better show out there. I'm just going to say it. I don't think there's a better show out there. I believe that. So, <laughs> that's, And if I didn't, I probably shouldn't be doing this. All right. Ian, knew of you from your Fox appearances, then discovered your show prior to the pandemic. I'm not trying to be a kiss-ass or anything, but you've been right when there were voices on the right making wild claims like the perpetrators of Russian collusion would be brought to justice when it should be sadly abundantly clear to everyone by now that the swamp protects its own. I appreciated the candor. Well, you know, Ian, this is a really nice message to get because I was telling you all along, you and everyone who listens, there will not be, they got away with Russian collusion. I mean, by the time we got to the the Mueller report was released and everything else. And everyone was saying, well, now it's going to go the other direction. Who kept telling you no one's Comey's not getting arrested. It's not going to happen. There's not some timer where all of a sudden people are going to you know, get. No, I know the swamp. And also I speak the truth. And there it was unrealistic. And, and I know there are a lot of people because it gets attention. Oh, you're the you know, when you're the person who says there's going to be justice for Russia collusion. Oh, everyone wants to listen. Oh, you. No, there wasn't. No, there wasn't. And better to live in reality and know the opposition we're dealing with and know what the other side is willing to do to defeat us and to fight in that world of reality than to live in this fantasy of, oh, sure, it'll all be fine. Don't worry about it. They'll be held to account when they won't. 
and they weren't. So, Ian, thank you for giving me credit on this. Thank you for saying that I was one of the very few who followed the Russia collusion, uh, Russia Gate thing closely and was telling you all along, guys, no one's going to jail for this from the deep state. And what I said was true, and I was right. So thank you for that. All right, everybody, back tomorrow. Shields high.